Hello, hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European Journalists and Academics, but this edition is special because it is co-produced with theanalysis.com. And this is your host, Maria Cernat, and with me as usual, the Bulgarian-born Polish journalist Bojan Stanislavski. Thank you for being here with us. Hello, hello. Uh, theanalysis.news. Dot news, sorry, okay. not dot com. Theanalysis.news. We thank Jay and uh, this journalistic initiative for offering us the chance to talk to and speak to their viewers and offer our perspectives on recent events taking place not only in Eastern Europe, but in a part of the world that doesn't receive much of the Western media attention. And this time around, we are going to talk about Kazakhstan. A big country uh, situated, uh, as we discussed in the first episode, uh, that you will have a link to that we invite you to uh, watch. Um, in Central Asia, along with other republics, that was recently uh, in the middle of some protests, violent protests that erupted in many cities uh, at the beginning of the month. Uh, January the 2nd was the day that the protests started in many, city of, many cities of Kazakhstan because the prices for uh, natural liquid gas, mainly a fuel used by the citizens in Kazakhstan to move around for their cars may, mainly, nearly doubled. And that prompted the citizens to go on the streets and protest. Now, on January the 3rd, what is interesting is that the government um, that is currently ruled by Kasim Yomar Tokayev took a step back and said, okay, we'll listen to you. We understand that maybe the prices are too big. They even started an investigation claiming that it was some sort of cartel not the government that decided to double the prices. But the very next day, uh, there were all sorts of violent clashes between violent protesters and the security forces. 12 people were killed and 3,000 people were arrested uh, in the days that followed January the 4th. And that was the, the start of the violent part, so to speak, the violent episode of the protests in Kazakhstan. Now, why is this Kazakhstan important? Because we are talking about very, very rich country, not only in terms of oil and gas, but also uranium and other important resources that are being exploited with the aid of foreign investment. And we discussed in the first segment of our show the fact that basically uh, the lion's share in terms of foreign investment is taken by Netherlands, Dutch Shell, and then we have um, in the second position, the United States, and then um, Chevron, have Chevron, of course, and then we have Switzerland, and then we have Russia owning only 6% in terms of foreign investment, and China with 6%, even though Russia has thousands of 
border, common border with Kazakhstan, they only have 6% in terms of foreign investment in this country. So this is very interesting to see how things unfold also from an economic perspective. Uh, it was uh, our pleasure to listen to the analysis provided by uh, my colleague Boyan that uh, showed how complicated basically the power structure in this post-Soviet state actually is and how many uh, layers of powers have to take have to be taken into account when discussing the situation in Kazakhstan. Now, what happened uh, recently also were the violent clashes um, stopped when Russia sent a couple of thousands of men on the ground to secure the strategic objectives of the country and to defend this uh, infrastructure and all the rest. Why did they do that? Because Kazakhstan is part of the collective security treaty that was signed in 1992, where Soviet states, post-Soviet states signed this. Russia, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan signed actually this treaty. And it's important to note that also China is an observer member of this treaty. So there's, this is a security treaty that basically enabled Russia and allowed for the Russian Federation to intervene and um, help uh, President um, Tokayev uh, basically reestablish order in the country. Now, I want to discuss in this segment of our show the media uh, reactions and how this was portrayed. Because as we saw in the first episode, the situation is very, very complex. You have all sorts of informal organizations there, some sorts of clans that are taking uh, an important part in the power structure. You also had this leader that was Nazarbayev, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, that was able to maintain some sort of, um, how should I say, he was well, able some to kind of balance, maybe some, some kind of balance, some kind of balance between all very these volatile, factors, yeah. very volatile situation. Now he is 81 years old. He is still exercising a lot of influence because he is the head of the Security Council. He was he removed. Was from, he was removed recently, but yeah. from that position, he was able to uh, influence the situation in the country. Maybe that was the time where President Kasim Tokayev took the opportunity to assert himself as the main uh, leader, even though Tokayev was actually suggested by um, Nazarbayev, was actually he was the one, he was supported by the uh, ex- uh, it, it would have not happened leader. otherwise. It's just because of the structure, because of all those things that I explained in the previous segment, because of those dependencies and and and, and sort of difficult networks of power and, and and dependencies and so on and so forth, it was you know it was almost impossible, or maybe through some violent you know coup and and, and stuff like that. But otherwise, like within the political process, whatever we think about the political process and its quality uh, in, in in Kazakhstan, within that that framework, it would have been impossible to actually get someone who's obviously hostile you know, to the top. So this was a gradual process of removing this annoying personality. And I did explain why it, 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 why he appeared annoying, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, to many parties that are involved somehow in this Kazakh chessboard. 
But, you know, the question of Tokayev, and again, I don't have the time to explain his entire biography and stuff like that, but suffice to say that he's a person who is an extremely... who has a lot of experience okay like he's he's a he's an able bureaucrat with a lot of experience with a huge past history as a seasoned diplomat you know he was in china he was in singapore then he was back in china you know uh even during the soviet like again i don't want to even go there because it's a whole different show that we could but what is important here and and i it is important from the point of view of what is going on what has you know uh what happened last week, basically, this blitzkrieg kind of thing that occurred uh, last week in Kazakhstan, is that, you know, Tokayev is also pretty popular, you know, in this uh, democratic sense, because he was not any sort of central figure or not even close to central figures uh, of many, of of a slew of corruption scandals that you know, uh, that were just part of the everyday life in Kazakhstan over over the past years. So, uh, you know, he is viewed by many as a fair and, and just and, you know, uh, uncorru- not, not corrupt pol- politician. Like, obviously, there is corruption involved, like anywhere on all stages of power in Kazakhstan. So um, it, it's, it, it's kind of difficult for me to believe that he would not you know, participate in any of those schemes that were there to, to, to a smaller or bigger extent. But he was basically able to come clean uh, of any sort of, you know, major big... Uh, scandalous, you know, corruption situations that that are really a, a kind of standard thing in Kazakhstani uh, politics, so to say. So uh, that's that's also pretty important. And obviously, you know, because of his past, because of his uh, abilities as a diplomat and so on and so forth, he's got he's able to speak to to you know foreign factors. He's able to you know sit down, negotiate with Russia, with China, with whomever, and who obviously has got a you know a kind of understanding of how to act in difficult situations and so on and so forth. And obviously for him, it was important to sort of be able to assert himself as the leader and to finally, you know, get rid of Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, okay, as the head of the Security Council. Because what is important, one of the important features of being the head of the Security Council in Kazakhstan is that all the security apparatus, which is the, the, the you know, the repression, the repressive apparatus of the state is in the hands of that person. So, you know, generally speaking, the it, it was allowed... Uh, you know, Tokayev was allowed to become sort of, you know, to, to dictate the, the, the internal, the dynamics of the internal process in Kazakhstan by becoming the president of the country. But he was not, you know, able to do whatever he likes because he would be easily stopped had he crossed, you know, somewhere uh, the, the, the interests of the group of, of, you know, the oligarchic clan group backing Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, who at the time, you know, had been the uh, the head of the security council i'm sorry for the confusion if it appears confusing to anyone but this is the situation it's just pretty yeah, complicated so, so let me sum it up so basically you had um two key figures in the power structure the official power structure because as boyan explained there are all sorts of informal groups that are very important in kazakhstan because this is the structure of the society it is somehow clan based very hierarchical with a lot of informal leaders but Formally, there are 
two important functions, and that is the president and the head of the security apparatus. Now, it was a very long and painful process to get rid of Nur Sultan uh, Nazarbayev, who asserted himself for a while as a balanced leader, but at a certain point he became narcissistic to the point of insanity, moving the capital and then renaming it. Now the capital is Nur Sultan. <laughs> I find this to be extremely hilarious, but nevertheless. And then <clears throat> the way to do it was to somehow convince him to give up the position of president and to go and become the leader of the Security Council. And he would still exert a lot of power from that position. And the most plausible explanation right now is that basically Tokayev wanted to use these protests to get rid of uh, Nuzarbaya once and for all, and to remove him even from the Security uh, Council and to assert himself as the leader and the true leader of uh, Kazakhstan. That would be- And I think he succeeded. Uh, <clears throat> and I think he succeeded because also he dismissed all the members of the government and That's he true. formed a new government. And he announced, I think uh, just the other day or very recently, he announced that the government will be um, uh, headed by uh, a bureaucrat and a technocrat. So things are going to the direction that was anticipated, and that is that between the clash between yeah. the two, Tokayan of Nazarbayev, Tokayan won the battle. And now it is finally the time for Nazarbayev at 81 years old to retire, isn't to it? Retire, that's, that's true, <laughs> that's high time, absolutely. But uh, uh, I don't know, you know, the, he impersonates this kind of Soviet tradition of gerontocracy, like, you know, Brezhnev died in power. I don't know, maybe Sultan Nazarbayev had the same plans, I'm not sure. But, but uh, you know, what is important here uh, is definitely to, uh, to look at it as you know, power war, power game between those two uh, two people. And it's a factor that is often overlooked. But I think we, we, we should perhaps begin with how it all began and what it transformed itself to. And only then, how would Nur Sultan, oh, sorry, how would uh, Kasim Jomart Tokayev actually benefit from it? And, and of course, you know, in, in, the, in the whole story, what I'm presenting here is a hypothetical explanation because uh, on the basis of, of, of very careful, I would argue, research that, I, uh, <clears throat> that I've done. But let's go back to the 2nd of January, okay, Be, which is when it all indeed begun. And, uh, you know, the beginning was pretty symbolic, I would say, uh, because it, it began in the town or, or city of Zhanozen, okay, which is uh, which which is also I mean people who <clears throat> followed uh, who have followed the situation in in Kazakhstan or Central Asia would probably uh, uh, recall the situation in Zhanozen and and the province uh, the way it's in the west where the resources are, where the companies are that, you know, the, the direct foreign investments and all the rest of it, uh, and, and where the the junior uh, <coughs> Jews is also uh, sort of located in this area. Uh, it, it started there, and, and it started, it, there, there was a logical reason why it started there, because all those companies, including the, the you know, the refineries that, 
uh, sort of uh, refined the gas or the oil, the everything, and then, you know, made it, make it available to gas stations, retailers, and so on and so forth. They are there. And indeed, what happened, uh, you know, uh, was in terms of the policy of the government that, that produced this crisis, was that the government removed the cap from the price. In other words, it removed the control of the price of the LNG, which is liquid natural gas, which serves as the main fuel for individual people and for businesses in Kazakhstan, mostly because it's very cheap and because there's abundance of it in, in Kazakhstan. And apparently cars mm-hmm. can run on that too. I'm not a driver, so I don't know about this technology. But it, it's uh, most of the cars, they don't drive on gasoline, but they drive on LNG. Now, I, I ha- we have to, to be aware of the fact that the LNG price per liter was extremely low. And also the taxes that are, uh, you know, normally in Europe, at least, I don't know about, you know, uh, America and Canada, but in Europe, at least, there are many taxes attached to every liter of oil or, or gasoline that you're uh, that you're purchasing, because those taxes then serve the purpose of construction, uh, you know, road construction, you know, uh, re- renovation of those roads and, and the transportation infrastructure and so on and so forth. Well, this is not precisely the case in Kazakhstan. I mean, there are some taxes attached there, but they are very low, uh, particularly in comparison to, you know, uh, the countries of Europe. So the price, uh, the price was about fixed 50, 60 tenge, which is the, the, uh, uh, the currency in Kazakhstan, and it does correspond to about 0.1, that is 10 euro cents, okay, per liter of, of LNG gas. So we're talking about very low prices, very low. And because some people would uh, probably, you know, ask the question whether, you know, it could be compared uh, nominally that we should have a, a sort of, we should compare it also considering the average wage maybe, or some other indicators like that. So let me just say for the purpose of the discussion that the average wage, which I know is not the perfect indicator, but let's just take it here. Uh, The average wage in Kazakhstan is only, uh, well, only, I don't know, is just 50% of the average wage in Poland. So we're talking about about 500 euros and 1,000 euros, okay, roughly, I mean, 500 euros being the average wage in Kazakhstan and 1,000 euros being the average wage in Poland. Again, roughly. Uh, so, you know, 1.1, like 10 euro cents per liter, regardless of whether you earn 500 euros or 1,000 euros, I mean, of course it matters, but regardless of that, is very little for a liter of, for one liter of fuel, okay? Very little. So whether it's 1.1.2, it's not really such a major issue, but it was enough, and I, I, I accept this, that it it sort of brought people out to the street to protest because it was, you know, regardless of how little the, 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 the sums are, it's, you know, 100% increase, okay? So people have all the reasons in the world to go out and be dissatisfied with it, and they started a protest. Now, what happened, and this is something that is overlooked or not reported or unreported in the West media, is that on the second day when the protests were gaining traction, but they were absolutely peaceful, classical protests, so to say, people would gather some, you know, uh, in front of certain uh, uh, facilities, institutions, facilities would block the roads, maybe, you know, some intersections and stuff like that. 
What happened on the second day of the protest, which is on the, uh, I mean, some sources argue that it even happened in the first day, but like for the sake of the discussion, uh, the second day, the local authorities in Zhenozen and the management of the biggest refineries uh, there, they met, they went out to the protesters and they said they don't understand what is going on. They really, that's at least what's reported in the media, you know, Kazakhstani media and Russian media, that they are not sure what, what was going on because they did sell, the, uh, you know, they did sell at a higher level after the, uh, the, the cap was removed, but not such high. They reported that they were selling, uh, they were selling their, their LNG for about 75 tenge per liter. And there is just makes no sense for it to be available to retailers for 120, which it was the situation. Okay, that it's just that this mechanism is is very strange, and this is why this is why the prosecution in Kazakhstan is actually looking into a potential business mm -hmm. conspiracy. Okay, because uh, obviously, and I I, I find this credible uh, that you know the, the no one knew why is this really so high now. Anyway, right after this, uh, the, the, the initial protests, on the second and on the third, uh, actually the government made a pledge that they're going to reintroduce some kind of control mechanism on the prices of LNG. Not the same one, probably, maybe something else. They, they were not sure yet, but one way or another, this problem would be solved. So they, do, they wouldn't have to be uh, really preoccupied with that. You know, in a situation like that, what you would expect is, you know, the protesters to go out, declare victory, I don't know, go <laughs> party, go home, whatever, you know, and wait for the results in a sense that, you know, in a one week time or whatever, they would uh, sort of see whether the government had uh, actually delivered on the promises or not. So, But the strange thing that occurred, and this is where, you know, the, the, the sort of the... the color revolution scenario seems to kick in and it seems to be credible at least to some extent now i want to say that straightforward there is no clear evidence that there was a color revolution attempt at least not a, not in, in the most classical manner that we would have uh, th that could be easily compared to ukraine or ukraine belarus or that's true, but there were some elements which were definitely part of the handbook. You know, I mean, I don't know who wrote that that, that textbook on color rail, how to carry them out, but you know, it's just one book, and it seems like it seems like it's an instruction that is applied here and there every once in a while. So what happened is on the protest suddenly started to gain very violent character and in a, in a region which is completely you know somewhere totally away away like you know from from uh, from the country's west where they originally began and where it was logical for them to actually uh, begin and uh, you, you know uh, of course in that region there were there were also some other demonstrations but again this is a factor overlooked by the western journalists because they focus on you know in almaty there were thousands of people that's true there were thousands of people but in many other small towns there were demonstrations or meetings of, you know sometimes a few hundreds of people and sometimes just a dozen of people would go out in a very meaningless manner like why would they actually do this you know why would 12 or 10 or 15 or or, or some you know some such an amount of people go out you know in 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 you know in the main squares of the town
I think we we lost uh, Boyan for a while here, and uh, while waiting for there? him. Yes, I am uh, here. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I there was saying um, in the last that moment. we lost you for a few seconds, and that was a perfect uh, opportunity for me to announce again the viewers that we are discussing the way it was presented in the media. And as you said in the previous segment, of course, what could you expect since um, the West uh, has every interest to bash Russia, and now it is the big protesters in quest for democracy that are being crushed by the ugly and cruel dictator and so on and so forth. This is a narrative. And of course, Russia, the biggest wolf of all the way, the biggest enemy, is going to go there and crush the protesters. And then you had the Russian media that you explained that oh, they were screaming, oh, CIA, this is uh, orchestrated from outside the country and so on and so forth. While in fact, it started off in a very volatile internal political uh, landscape here. We had Nazarbayev and Tokayev uh, somehow competing. You had the president uh, Tokayev and Nazarbayev, the head of the security, that were in a rivalry actually because Tokayev uh, didn't want it to be just a poodle of uh, Nazarbayev and wanted to assert himself as a true leader and not just some sort of uh, minor figure that would just do as the old Nazarbayev would uh, tell him to do. And um, now you had this very interesting thing that happened on January 4th when uh, the demands of the protesters were met. And, uh, Essentially, yes. And then it started to become uh, violent. Then it started right. to become violent. Right. This is very <laughs> interesting. And you said that, of course, this is not the situation in, like the one in Ukraine, but at the same time, you see some very peculiar things, like the fact that basically the so-called revolt or revolution started in one part of the country, then it and then it suddenly violent. went somewhere else, yeah, in a very went... coordinated manner. In a very co that, that's that, that's you know what gives me the kind of sense that there must have been some kind of you know uh, color revolution element in the whole uh, initiative, because this is this is the basis for all color revolutions. The, the most important things are to to create chaos and violence in the very beginning in order to create the kind of impression that would be followed by all kinds of propaganda in the social media and everywhere that that the authorities are giving up because this is the only way that you can break uh, the morale of the security apparatus like the police the army the whatever the gender mary whatever is you know in whatever <clears throat> state so this is exactly what they were trying to do and you know and this is the crucial moment for all color revolutions is whether the the authorities are are, are strong enough to sort of uh, uh, react against that in 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 a forceful manner, and this is this is pretty strange because, uh, like in Kazakhstan, in Almaty, in Nur Sultan, which are you know cities and urban centers far far away from uh, from the uh, where the protests initially erupted, and that it happened in a very uh, organized manner, particularly in the afternoon and in the evening, and then the, the, the riots would last through the whole night. 
right? And and that's that's not how it happens. Like if it's spontaneous, you don't have like you know the same thing going on in the same manner in different spots, which are far away from the, from where the protest originated. And again, you know, it might be a coincidence. I don't know. Like there is no evidence that someone actually pulled the strings and let them. But there is a convincing circumstantial evidence, convincing at least to me, that. <clears throat> on one, on the one hand, it was the opposition in, uh, or the Kazakhstani opposition. I was going to say in Kazakhstan, but many of them are not in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. The opposition leaders, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about them and even give the, the, the names because it doesn't matter. I would have to, to tell the whole story uh, around them. But one of them is in exile, who's a gangster who was, you know, convicted of corruption, you know, in Kazakhstan, in exile in Paris. There are two people that run a platform, an opposition platform called Basse. Mm, uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, apparently a marriage. I even wrote down their names. Uh, it's like uh, Aidos and Natalia Sadikov. Okay, so they, they run this. And all of the opposition, suddenly they wanted uh, to... to. Uh, uh, by the way, about those Sadikovs, you know, they're, even their phone numbers, okay, when you look at their official platform, their, their website, they are Ukrainian phone numbers. So, I mean, you know, it also speaks, right, to, to, to the whole situation and to, to how the thing, uh, how, how the, the, the opposition functions there. But, and by the way, this is why, this is why some people have picked up this, this train of thought, this train of analysis to link the, uh, the violence and, and, and the clashes with, with some kind of incentive coming from Ukraine, okay, uh, it, it's, it's because the, uh, those leaders, those opposition leaders that are residing in Ukraine or other, uh, or Paris or wherever, mm-hmm. they were trying to project their alleged influence onto those protests and they were doing their best to present it as their initiative. So it's not so much of a mistake on the part of many, you know, journalists that were sort of, you know, they kind of reported on this, that, you know, some people obviously reported to some journalists that it's them who are leading the revolt, despite the fact that it was not the the case. And the journalists, you know, because of the location of those figures, sort of uh, making the, mm, the, the association or making the conclusion that the protests are are, are uh, managed from Ukraine. Anyway, so those people were doing their best. And when they were doing their best, I believe that it could have been the case that the West, okay, and the usual suspects that are everywhere all over the place, like, you know, the human rights lobby, the democracy lobby, democracy spreading lobby, whatever, you know, those NGOs, the civic society, so to say, that they, they kind of picked up on that. And, you know, some Westerners, probably some sections of the Western ruling classes thought that, hmm, well, maybe it's a good moment, actually, to do something. And, you know, in in, in case like, you know, in, the, in Kazakhstan, they, you know, it was enough to just drop the bomb of chaos and let's see what comes out of it for them. Because otherwise they had not much of a move. Right, so so perhaps some sections of the ruling of Western ruling classes thought that it's it would be okay for them to actually use this opportunity to see how prepared the opposition in in uh, in Kazakhstan is to actually take part in, in 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 an experiment like a color revolution. So I would I don't think that they believed that they could actually take power. I don't believe that because it was obvious to anyone, even to the most thick-headed, you know, democracy spreading. Uh, you know, neocons wherever in America or elsewhere that, uh, you know, the Kazakhstani opposition is way, way too weak to, you know, perform an exercise like uh, the one we observed in Ukraine or or, or Belarus. But I think that they did try to, to do something. Now, it's actually 
the media that were uh, that were encouraging them to do to do that, in my opinion, because they were falsely reporting that the clashes are ongoing, that the police is giving up, that the police is switching sides, even which seems to be a total BS. On the contrary, according to all reports, which I find very credible and detailed and informed mm-hmm. that I read, on the during the night before midnight, I think it was even, or maybe shortly after midnight, uh, uh, from the fourth on the fifth uh, of January. The police in Almaty was able to push back, to, uh, you know, on the protesters to remove them from all the buildings that they managed to set on fire, occupy, destroy, and stuff like that. They managed to move them from the central squares, and they started a large-scale repression in terms of detentions, arrests, and so on and so forth. So the scene was rather clean. You know, in, in, in that moment. This is I very mean, of course, interesting. Yes, exactly. because of course very... in Romania. Yes, please finish your thought because I have my own. No, no, no. Please go away, way in. I will. Sw- I will finish uh, well, the, the the story later. There are some important elements that I want to make sure that I uh, convey to to our public, both uh, the barricade and the analysis dot news. Now, first of all. There is a lot of hypocrisy going on here. And if the mainstream media presents you with narratives where you have positive and negative heroes, stay away from it. Just stay away from it, because this is far too complicated. And I think a a person that has a pinch of intelligence should stay away from such narratives. I would give you just this. Please, Boyan, show us a very beautiful family picture where you will see this person, Nur Sultan, this dictator that uh, renamed the capital of Kazakhstan after his uh, name. Uh, It is now Nur Sultan. It was Astana, but it is now Nur Sultan. So he is in the same picture in the Guardian article that was presented recently with Voila, Tony Blair. This is so interesting, isn't it? And why is this interesting? Because in 2011, that was an uprising in Kazakhstan that was repressed. But back then, there were not beautiful people fighting with the dictator, isn't it? There were violent elements that needed to be repressed. And 30 million uh, euros later, because this is uh, the estimate of how much the company ran by Tony Blair received from Nazarbayev. So 30 million um, uh, dollars later, then we see that Kazakhstan is a model of success, of democracy, and so on and so forth. And I wanted to make sure that the viewers consume this. So uh, I want to just show again, because I like very much the family picture where you can see uh, uh, this is Nur Sultan Nazarbayev and Tony Blair, just to, to be sure and to, to understand that presenting oh my God. black and oh white my God. perspective Maria, I'm sorry. I'm just realizing now that this, <laughs> that this article was written by Luke Harding. You can see his name on the right side, or maybe on the left side, uh, depending on <laughs> you know the, the, the screen. But Luke Harding is the most pathetic uh, uh, journalist of the Guardian. I mean, he he is the guy who wrote the book Collusion and who was dismantled many times on 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 real journalism programs, not least in the one led by Aaron Mate. 
at the time when he was still in the uh, in, in the Real News Network, where he just, you know, ran away from the studio. I mean, he just switched himself off while they were talking I because he was just not... A, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just had to weigh in because when I saw this name, I'm just aller allergic to Luke Harding. But anyway, that's that's just a... Anyway, we can find different articles because this is... I mean, yeah. I mean, I just picked up because I like the picture, but uh, yeah, yeah, I sure. this is this is common sense, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The fact that I... This is why I also showed the map with the foreign investment. I mean, look at the numbers and follow the money. The idea that you suddenly have some people that are so thirsty for freedom, fighting dictators, this is such BS. I mean, people should move on because this type of narratives made it possible for right-wingers to take power. Now, the second thing that I want to, to say here, of course, the Russians are going to say, oh, this is the CIA and this is a foreign... You know, when people are upset, you cannot infantilize them and say, this is the workings of the CIA. Yes, of course it is, but they have to find the fertile ground. If, the, if there true. is not the fertile ground and people are perfectly happy with the lives that they are living, yeah. then... Color revolutions don't color occur revolution where people are, you know, where people are happy with their lives are thriving. And, uh, and, yeah. uh, so it is no point in infantilizing and emphasizing all the on foreign interference because it means that all Kazakhstani citizens are just uh, children, isn't it? Are so naive and um, easy to be led. Um, into also no, but, but you see, there's one important. So this is also yeah, but, an important factor that I wanted to to let our viewers know. What is what is also pretty important here, uh, probably, is sort of uh, you know just uh, you know the Russians or the Russian propaganda, if you like, or I know the Russian media. They when they were presenting their narrative, they were not really trying to infantilize people. I mean, uh, you know, the the Russian propaganda whatever the, the russian reporting on that on that matters is much more intelligent what they are saying is that people you know people that are subjected to this kind of experiment or, or this kind of operation like our revolutions that they are being the victim of it. it it's not that they are you know being led by the nose by someone it's it's normally and and you know this this interpretation is by and large true I mean, this is not the regular people that go somewhere and, and, you know, that they're being led by the nose because they are stupid and ignorant that they can't understand. It's mostly color revolutions are prepared and conducted and exercised and led by, and there could be some people who are confused, obviously, taking part in it, but it's not th the main thing. They are, they are led by highly trained, you know, organizers. OK, uh, that means, uh, you know, people groomed by all those NGOs and other nefarious organizations that are just there to meddle in the political process of countries where the authorities are disliked by the West. So <clears throat> so what I, what I want to say here is that, you know, they were not trying to say that, you know, Kazakhstani people are stupid or anything like that. They were just arguing in a very bold manner, which kind of, you know, there is no evidence for it in this instance. But they were arguing in a very bold manner. Oh, the CIA, you know, and, <laughs> and you know, and, and the West and trying to organize you know the coups and stuff like that and yeah so so i think that this was a little bit over the top but i also want to say that there is an element of of 
truth yes, you know, or, or, you know or something what, that you is... You know what caught my attention was the fact that it was so organized and so harmonious and so mm -hmm. violent at the same time. This is not how yeah. ordinary people organize. I mean, exactly. and we should see and... common elements. They go for what? National television. They go for strategic objectives. This exactly. is what they call them. They organize in a very violent manner. Everything happens very fast. Then they have the media propaganda sending all sorts of reports all over the place that it is a, a clear victory on their side. So all these elements here are to be taken into account when discussing this these episodes because I don't imagine mm -hmm. ordinary people knowing that they have to go there and to be so well organized. I mean, we don't have evidence for that, but this is important to to know. You're right. Here. You're right. But also, people have to, you know, people just protests. When you see, you know, I participated in many protests and many actions and many also, things like that. Uh, you too, right? Yes. Like. Exactly. And you know what happens with protests, street protests and stuff like that? Okay, you can have some occupation here and there. You can have a blockade uh, blockage of, of, I don't know, intersections or whatever. But finally, you know, after some time... You go home. You either have to... Yeah, exactly. You go home <laughs> because you got to go to work. You got to go to school. You got to do all those kind of things. You got to cook for your children. You know, you got to spend time with your family. And when people just don't go home and stay there and spark violence and, and you know... Uh, you know, those kind of things happen, then you start to wonder, right? So uh, this is a classical case. I mean, Kazakhstan, like, instead of going home, especially after they've achieved their goals, yes, right? I mean, is, the government said, very... okay, guys, go home. We're going to take care of it. No worries. And you right? know, about and the whether internet, you can believe what... the, the thing that I wanted... I'm, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. They closed out the allowed, internet. And uh, yes, Why? of course. But this is a very important question. Yes, mm -hmm. Well, here, the only thing that I want to say, there's a lot of information that this is interesting. Kazakhstan saw an April increase in terms of energy consumption because China cracked down on Bitcoin mining companies. 88 companies had to flee China because mining for Bitcoin was forbidden there. Why? Because it, uh, it's a huge pressure on the energy grid of these companies that had to do uh, huge calculations and uh, have their computers doing this mining operations for Bitcoin. And I had instances and we heard of instances of actually Chinese authorities going down and destroying the computers because these people wouldn't listen otherwise. So they had to go somewhere where to go. 88 companies, that's a huge number for 80 million uh, people country like Kazakhstan to go there because energy was very cheap and they they placed a very important uh, burden uh, on the energy grid and on energy consumption. And I think this is also That's important. True. And I think mm -hmm. it was a good thing that they closed down the internet because everybody was desperate. I know that I have friends working in IT and everybody's fascinated with all this libertarian uh, Bitcoin speculation. Yeah. And they were yeah. desperate because the Bitcoin uh, went down oh, yeah. because of yeah. that. So. But by the way, I, if you allow, yes, Maria, yes. I feel that we should actually conclude this uh, episode now and start a third segment because we're running out of time very rapidly. I can see that there's like about two minutes and a half until uh, the, the end of that segment. I just want to say for the very end of this segment is that you're totally right to uh, to interpret, in my opinion, the, the kind of Bitcoin thing in the context. Uh, I, I only want to say that, uh, you know, I feel, judging by, you know, the... The amount or the intensity of the attachment of the Western media to this Bitcoin thing, uh, I, I think it's a bit 
overblown in a sense that, you know, I, I mean, there were elements which were much more important than the Bitcoin thing in the entire uh, in the entire uh, uh, event, but let me just get to that in the in, in the third segment of our program. Okay, that that will be a short one. So thank you very much for watching. For thank you, Paul J and the Analysis News for allowing us to talk to your audience. Thanks you, your our viewers. So I hope you find this uh, information that we present here interesting. And if you do, please go to our Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/TheBarricade, become our Patreon and support us. And we'll see you all in our next segment. Thank you, Boyan, for the analysis and dialogue. Thank you.